when you're in it, you forget the stuff from the early list. Like he hasn't uh, supplied his tax returns. He's still making money at the Trump Hotel DC, even though he had promised to turn over payments. Those are the things from the early list that we just normalize because there's so much ongoing chaos. So people don't realize that our democracy is fading and our values are fading. And then you'll have an event like Charlottesville, or you'll have an event like a hurricane where you see, you know, with Hurricane Harvey, that Trump hasn't named a new head of FEMA, that he's deconstructing the parts of the government that would be helping. Hello, welcome to The Resistors, a podcast where we talk to all the people trying to save us from Donald Trump. I'm your host, Chris Faith. Amy Siskin is a longtime advocate for women, girls, and the LGBTQ community. After a successful Wall Street career, including co-leading the trading department at Morgan Stanley, she co-founded the New Agenda, a national organization working on issues including economic independence and advancement, gender representation and bias, sexual assault, and domestic violence. But this year, she might be best known for her weekly list documenting the normalization of things in this Trump era that were really never normal before. There's so much I want to ask about this list, so let's get right to it. Amy, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with the resistors. Thank you for having me. So back in November after Trump was elected, but before he was inaugurated, you began publishing this weekly list on medium.com. And you've since built an audience of hundreds of thousands on Medium, as well as on Twitter and Facebook. And the tagline for your list is, experts in authoritarianism advise to keep a list of things subtly changing around you so you'll remember. Can I ask what motivated you to start publishing this in the first place? And um, the surprise came on election day. I started to read a lot of articles that were circulating by experts who had written about authoritarianism um, and what that would feel like and what to do in preparation. And the common theme that seemed to come about was that things would be changing subtly and that you probably wouldn't be able to notice them unless you wrote things down. Uh, because once things got underway, it would be chaos. So the advice was to write a note to yourself on November 8th and then keep writing. I decided shortly after uh, a week from Saturday after the election, I, I went to Val Kill, which is Eleanor Roosevelt's home, and I was going there, which I often do just to get some, um, you know, my Zen moment and to get some inspiration. And Eleanor, too, had written a daily column called My Day. So between the advice of the experts and the idea that Eleanor tracked history by writing things down, I went home that night in November and did the first weekly list, which in the early weeks was super short. It was, you know, the early weeks are 10 to 20 items. Um, But already there were things not normal, like Trump tweeting about uh, the cast of... um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of the Broadway play, um, that the way they were attacking Pence. Um, Hamilton, yes, my apologies. So already things were weird from the beginning, but uh, as he took office and has gotten underway, the length of the list and the extreme uh, nature of the items on the list has really grown exponentially. 
Right. I think your first weekly list back in November had nine items. And this week's list, which is the 41st week, has an astounding 108 items. Are you just being more inclusive or is this a reflection of how much worse things are getting? Well, I have been really careful to be consistent with how I gather data. So there's no um, like comparison to say in some weeks there was more or less going on. I'm gathering data in the same way. What's basically happened is, and, and thank you for reminding me, week one was so short. Uh, it's just increased week over week. And you're, you're right, then we've in the last four weeks have uh, have had a steady flow of over 100 not normal items. And some of it is related to the Russia investigation, which stuff is coming out every week. And a lot of it is relating to the things that he's doing to deconstruct our democracy uh, since he's taken office uh, and, and doing so very proactively. So, I, you know, I think there's a combination of, of those two things and also his attacks on marginalized communities and taking away their rights and protections. Yeah. In your tagline, you talk about the things that are subtly changing around us. And even though Trump's style is anything but subtle, is it the subtlety of this change that's the critical piece? You know, I the title is more meant to capture the notion of if you're a frog in water that's brought to boil, you don't notice it's going up one degree at a time. That's more the subtle thing that when you're in it, you forget the stuff from the early list, like he hasn't uh, supplied his tax returns. He's still making money at the Trump Hotel D.C., even though he had promised to turn over payments. Those are the things from the early list that we just normalized because there's so much ongoing chaos. So, yeah, the subtle word is is more meant to to kind of connote the overall theme that people don't realize that our democracy is fading and our values are fading. And then you'll have an event like Charlottesville or you'll have an event like a hurricane where you see you know, with Hurricane Harvey, that Trump hasn't named a new head of FEMA, that he's deconstructing the parts of the government that would be helping in a hurricane. Or with Charlottesville, you see the nature of how our country has already changed and how so much hatred has already been legitimized and given a voice under Trump. So that kind of came about subtly. We didn't necessarily notice it week by week. But you're right. When you read the, the items in a list, they're astounding. The NYU professor Jay Rosen said your lists are, in his words, one way of dealing with an overload of significant news, a surplus of eventfulness that allows things to hide in plain sight simply because there are too many of them to care about. And I would totally echo him. I can't describe how many times this year that I've thought to myself or said out loud to myself, this is crazy and you know, I do pay attention to the news each day and I'm aware of the craziness, but I know that I personally have become numb to a lot of it soon after the news breaks. Yeah, and I think part of the issue is our media and and I don't say it with a you know, wagging my finger at them, but it's the reality that they're always chasing the next shiny coin. And that's you know, in part it's their jobs. I mean, they need to cover what's happening, but because they're always moving on to the next thing, I think it's very hard for them to kind of step back and be more analytical, um, you know, with an overall picture of what's happening. There's a few columnists that are still able to do that, like Eugene Robinson, for example, is able to separate himself from the news and think big thoughts. But I think for a lot of journalists, 
they're so busy every day chasing the news, which is their job and, and being part of the chaos that they, they kind of miss the theme. So what I try to do each week is to open the list, um, with kind of my overview of what is the most important factors that week, just to kind of give a narrative to it. Um, because the lists themselves are long and hard to get through, but then the lists themselves are also meant, and I know people in the media are, are using them and people are sending it to their senators and their Congress people, um, just as a way to say, oh my God, there was so much going on this week out of the 108, I missed number 53 and 64 and 77. I didn't, I just didn't see those stories. So my hope is, that people can sort of you know step back from the chaos, read it all, take it in, and then the other amazing thing that happened along the way, a, a, a wonderful gentleman out in Washington State reached out to me early on and asked if it would be okay if he put all of the lists onto uh, a Tableau version, which allows you to sort. So if there's a news item on a name that we haven't heard for a while, like today, Felix Satter is in the news about Russia. Uh, you can go to the weekly list and sort and see in week 15, this happened, and in 17, this happened. And uh, it's just super helpful that way to trace storylines. So I, th I think what Jay was, was speaking to was sort of this is a supplemental tool to kind of document what's happening for folks that are day in, day out, just barraged with information and really unusual, shocking information. So it's, it makes it all the much harder for, I think, folks in our media to take this all in and not get bulldozed over by it. Do you see a reset taking place where the profit-seeking news industry is shifting from entertainment to a focus on protecting our democracy, or does that depend on the outlet? I think there's a few that are popping their heads up, but I think a lot of them are drawn into the new normal. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was driving this morning and I turned on MSNBC and the NBC correspondent Peter Alexander is reporting about retweeting a tweet from the governor of Texas. I mean, so when you think how far down the rabbit hole we are, I mean, if someone wanted to step back and say, we are now in a world where our leader is communicating through Twitter and through retweeting things that he often doesn't think about, and that's the news, and that's how we're trying to guess what he's thinking. And how strange that is that a major, you know, this is NBC correspondent reporting on MSNBC, so one of the majors, how how much our country and how strange this whole paradigm is. Um, and the other thing of interesting note is just watching, because I, I, I'm on Twitter, I now have a lot of folks that follow me from other parts of the world, I, and, and I've been interviewed I, I, in, by Spiegel and by newspapers in Europe, watching the reaction from overseas and looking on what's happening in our country and how we've basically lost our role as the world leader and people are genuinely concerned about our country falling into authoritarian hands as are many of us in this country. Do you worry, in addition to the press, do you worry about other institutions that are central to a democracy uh, surviving the Trump era? I'm thinking of something like the independent judiciary and its courts and judges. Yeah, so one thing that I've tried to do in addition to 
making some big picture observations each week uh, is a project I'm doing with moveon.org to produce videos now and then that kind of are more of a two-minute narrative about big picture things. And the most recent one I did, which now is approaching a million and a half views, a lot of people are, are watching it to kind of draw back on reference of what these small actions mean in, in accumulation, uh, that Trump is very purposely doing things to take away the checks and balances and to remove power from all the other parts of our 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 three branches and and put it back with him. So to give you three examples, our judicial branch, which up until now has been the most effective, the pardon of our PIO in the way it was done is a way for him to, he's already attacked the judicial branch, but it's a way for him to neutralize the judicial branch. The legislative branch is a check and balance only if they actually act. As as somebody tweeted at me yesterday, they're a check and balance only if they do their job. And, and they're Republicans at this point are, are pretty cowardly about speaking out. You know, they might do a watered down tweet. McConnell said nothing about the pardon of a pile. So he's done some unusual things. And I speak about this in my recent move on video where he's actually, when he fired Priebus and brought in a general, to me, that was a sign that he was about to take on the Republican Party. And he has, you know, we, and there's a bunch of items in this week's list, week 41, talking about him attacking Republicans. Uh, McConnell, McCain, Blake, Heller, he's trying to primary them, threaten them, threaten Murkowski with taking away funding from Alaska. So those two branches he's already attacked. And then within the executive branch, 62% of key roles are still unfilled. And a lot of the roles that would traditionally be done by the State Department are being farmed back to the White House, like talking about Iran and whether they're in compliance or Middle East peace. So the State Department, I think it's 22 out of 28 of the assistant secretary roles are still unfilled or filled with Obama holdovers. Um, and a lot of the departments have been shuttered. For example, the department that monitored anti-Semitism has been shuttered, the one that um, monitored refugees. So the State Department and a lot of the executive branch functionality uh, is just compromised because people aren't there. And then conversely, he's filled his secretary cabinet with folks that are just basically there to deconstruct the departments they run, whether it's Ben Carson with HUD um, or DeVos with education or Perry with energy. These are people that are dismantling regulations and, you know, and doing bad things as opposed to keeping up with what they should be doing. Right. Even though Steve Bannon recently departed the White House, it seems that his stated goal of deconstructing the administrative state uh, remains. Yes. Yes. And there, and he's very far along in seven months, shockingly far along. Do you have a sense in countries that have fallen to authoritarianism, how long this process of normalization takes before that fall happens? Or maybe I should ask it this way. Where are we on that timeline? You know, I, I think we're shockingly far along, if you think about it. If Trump is able to neuter the legislative branch the way he's been doing, um, 
basically we could be in a position where, and, and I don't mean to sugarcoat this, I'm just talking reality from the list, we could be in a position where we never have a fair election again. This election integrity commission, quote unquote integrity commission, um, is is working hard to get information that will be used to throw elections. Trump has not acknowledged Russia's role in our prior elections, and so there's every reason to believe this was another function of the State Department is to watch people from Russia who are in our country. They're not doing that. There's every reason to believe that people are in our country ready to sabotage 2020, in addition to gerrymandering and all the other issues. We could see, we could be in a place, if he stays in office, where we won't have a fair election again. We'll have elections, but we'll have elections like they have in Turkey or in Venezuela. <laughs> um, so, I think the the notion is we're we're further along than people might want to imagine, and uh, if we wait for Trump to leave office on his own avail, he'll never leave office. He'll be you know staying in office the same way any dictator stays in office, and then passing it on to Ivanka or whoever he chooses. Um, we're really in that kind of danger when you think about the things that are happening, the lists that are being collected, whether it's DreamHost. Um, at being asked to supply names of all the people that were on an anti-Trump website, this election commission wanting to know names and how they voted in past years. Um, these lists are being compiled for a reason. And that's how, you know, with the help of Russia, Trump won the first time was, um, you know, fooling with things through, uh, through, uh, you know, targeting people on social media or other ways, but to use, information to alter our election. And that is well underway, and we've done nothing to stop that. And I'm guessing that many Republicans simply dismiss your list as a partisan attack, but have any expressed appreciation to you for the list? No. <laughs> no, the, the comment is often, um, why did, did you do a list for Obama? Although, you know, that's a generalization. I really, honestly, I've, I have no idea who's actually reading it. I, w I would hope that some of the journalists that are Republicans are reading it. Uh, but I, I really am hoping it's, and, and this is something I purposely do. I, I, I get a lot of feedback, like, why aren't you including more um, in, for, for an item where I state it very flatly? Why aren't you being more opinionated or talking about what this means? What I've really tried to do is just lay out the facts. Um, the list is going to the Library of Congress. They are ar archiving it. So I want this to be just be something that future generations can kind of read and draw conclusions from. And so I'm, I'm trying to just make it very fact-based. So I, in concept, conservative people or, or Republicans would want to to read it. I, I, I actually have, to be honest, like I have no metric of whether that's happening or not. I just know a lot of people, hundreds of thousands, some weeks over a million are reading it, but I have no idea what the breakdown is. I assume it's mostly people involved in the resistance, but I'm hopeful that others are as well. I also wonder, while the Trump-Russia connection continues to get press coverage, do you worry that it's not more front burner when there are so many other assaults on the daily lives of people in this country by the Trump administration, and since the Russia investigations are still pending? I, I worry that the signal from our PIO pardon is to the people under investigation, I got your back, so don't turn on me. 
And I, I, that's what I worry about. I, I also can be, you know, I can give you a real world example last night, that Washington Post article about, um, Satter and Cohen being in communication and talking about throwing the election and Trump being in, in Moscow to open a Trump Tower Moscow. That trended for like a half hour and then it was on to the next thing. And these are really important items of news. I think people are just so overwhelmed and don't really know how to digest it all. Uh, so I, I'm hopeful that Mueller behind the scenes is doing what he needs to do and Trump will stay out of it. But I, I you know, who thought that Comey would get fired or Arpaio would get pardoned. I mean, Trump is always just testing new boundaries. You're right. It, it always feels like he's testing new boundaries to see what he can get away with. I also wonder if there's something about authoritarianism that in addition to normalizing those things that aren't normal also alters our sense of time. I'm often thinking to myself, was that only a few days ago that he said this or did that? But then we're on to the next off-the-wall news story, and all of this quickly fades in the memory and, and seems to shape our new reality. Yes. I find that every week when I'm doing the list uh, and putting it together, that I'll find items from Sunday and Monday and say to myself, oh my God, that happened this week. Because <laughs> there's so much content and... I think from what I can gather of him, he's just a chaotic person in his own mind and not a good leader and not fit to lead. So um, he's all over the place and we can argue about, you know, his mental illness and what it might be and whether, you know, that's grounds for him not to be leading and so forth. But whatever that is, I, you know, I don't think it's any grand plan to have all these people resign and leave and all the palace drama. I just think in his head, it's a constant storm. You know, he's a, a haunted man whose head is on, you know, fire all day. And so he reacts and he's doing this and that, and he's in 10 different directions. And that's just who he is as a person. So that's how our country is right now. It's a, it's a very odd feeling. I mean, it's the end of summer now. Today's August 28th, I was thinking to myself, I had all these projects I was planning to do before back to school, none of which got done. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone. Um, anyway, so, yes. <laughs> yeah, you, you referenced the so-called Voter Fraud Commission. I'm looking back here at week three of your list way back in December 2016. That was the week that Trump tweeted that millions of people voted illegally but there are a couple of other items on your list that stand out to me looking at it here. One of them, our news cycles now being led by Trump's Twitter account. Our media seems unable to do anything but follow along. And you also write, unprovoked by events or any reason, Trump suggested, again via a tweet, consequences for burning the American flag, perhaps loss of citizenship or a year in jail. Wow. That's amazing. I haven't read those lists in a while. I, but that's an example of that last item of one of those shiny coins. I remember at that time he tweeted that and it was something he brought up out of thin air that then drove the news cycle for however long. For two days, we were discussing burning flags for no legitimate reason. So that's an example. And I, I don't know if he's doing it to distract us. Sometimes he's doing things to distract us. And sometimes stuff like that, I think he's just 
excuse my French, crazy. <laughs> I was going to say effing crazy. And I, and I think there's just storms brewing in his head and he gets things out by writing them or by saying them or, you know, whatever is, is happening in that moment. So you began to talk earlier about Trump's vilification of communities. Uh, the list is long, of course, immigrants, Mexican Americans, Muslims, people of color, women, gay and lesbian and trans people, disabled people. And this goes beyond blatant racism, xenophobia, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, which are all bad enough. The scapegoating and the targeting are also central to that slide toward authoritarianism, aren't they? Yeah, so I think he uses them. First of all, he I, I believe he is a bigot because, well, before he took office, he was a birther. And decades before that, he was denying people of color housing in New York. So it's not like he woke up and decided I'm going to be a bigot. But he so, he, you know, he was a bigot coming in. But I think he's also now realized the need to throw his base red meat to keep them engaged, whether it's talking about the wall, I'm going to shut down the government. If we don't build the wall, which you have me on the record here saying, I believe he will shut down the government. It fits into everything else he does. Uh, or the transgender military ban on a Friday night. Uh, these are all like red meat for his base. And if you notice, a lot of these actions occur on days when Russia is flaring. For example, the transgender military ban was the same day that Manafort's home was raided. Uh, the, the stuff Friday that came out that he did right ahead of the hurricane. And then you know, yesterday, the Washington Post breaks the story about his personal lawyer communicating with Satcher about throwing the election. So I think when they call the White House for comment, or if he knows something's happening, he tries to change the subject. So there, there's that. And then there's also just his basis is way down. I mean, I, I look follow daily the Gallup poll. And when he took office, people were giving him the benefit of the doubt. And his approval, disapproval was um, about equal. I think it was the number was about 45%. But I, it, it's like a ski slope. The, you know, but and it, the trend line going down week by week, he's now pretty steadily around 35% approval, 60% disapproval. And there's no sign that that's not going to continue to get worse. So I think he knows he's kind of hit rock bottom and the space is going to continue to leave him unless he keeps them engaged. And um, these are the people that brought him to office, whatever the, I mean, that's my two cents. You can cloak it as they're concerned about their jobs and legitimately that's a concern. I take that concern. But for a lot of people, they're concerned about their jobs and they don't like the fact that women are taking their jobs or people are color or Latinos are taking their jobs or gays are taking their jobs. So um, it's kind of a two-edged sword that I think is better defined since Charlottesville. Right. And your day job is as president of the new agenda, which advocates for women and girls. Uh, are there signs either in this work or elsewhere that you're seeing signs of resistance that have been most encouraging to you? Yeah. I And I... I we had a board call shortly after the election, and as bad as we could have expected it to be, it, it's that much worse. Uh, and I, I could say this for any marginalized community from looking at my list, but for women, there's been so many setbacks and so many issues that our organization works on and beyond. I mean, if you talk about 
uh, DeVos saying they're no longer going to hold colleges accountable for campus sexual assault. Uh, the pay scale in the White House is the lowest it's been in decades for women, and the representation of women in leadership in the Trump regime is the lowest it's been since Reagan. Um, Trump is taking away programs that are put in place here and abroad. It was actually his second act when he took office was to get rid of what we do internationally to help provide re- reproductive rights for women who are in need in, in less industrialized countries. He took away that funding. Um, he's taken away funding for programs for teen pregnancy uh, education in our country. He's done away with Obama's Council for Women and Girls. I mean, every week there's something related to women's rights and issues that our organization advocates for. So um, we're engaged. We're doing what we can to raise awareness. We, we started an initiative called Red Tent. Um, meetups where people can get together with people in their community and um, be aware of what's going on, how these policies are impacting women and how they can get involved to to be part of the resistance. But I do think this is a a general observation. The resistance has been um, heavily heavily involved with women. I I think there was an early statistic that something like 80-some-odd percent of calls were being made by to, to senators and, and to members of the House were being made by women. So I think women are engaged, thank God. Uh, there's a lot of men engaged as well and, uh, you know, people more broadly. But I think if you look at um, his approval, his approval with women right now is 29% and with men it's 43%. So I think women understand how our rights are being impacted in so many different ways. And for us as mothers, those of us who have children, the impact of what his actions are for our children, the constant lying, the bullying, the hatred, um, how that impacts children. So I think moms and women generally are, are pretty activated right now. Right. And I'm thinking of Shannon Coulter's campaign, Grab Your Wallet, in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape, where she's helping consumers focus their attention on particular corporations that have enabled Trump. She's doing amazing work. She really, yeah, she and, and Sleeping Giant, who is, I don't know who it is, but whoever the people are behind that account, they're doing amazing work. Shannon um, has mobilized people around a lot of different causes and been really impactful and, and effective. Do you think that corporations can be a bulwark against the creeping authoritarianism? So that's something that we discussed on our board call right after the election, because some of us come from corporate America, and that's something we were hoping would kind of be the um, saving grace of this, our corporations, and and, and they have so far done just that. Uh, you know, after Charlottesville, it was the CEOs that took action and spoke out. And throughout this time, it's been the corporations, like Google's action against the memo, that say, this is our corporate culture. And despite what's happening outside, we're still maintaining uh, the integrity of diversity and inclusion. So I, th- I think the corporations have really stepped up in in a way that, unfortunately, our government has not, our Republican Party has not. They've abdicated their responsibility, but I've, I've been really pleasantly surprised by corporate America. Well, and even if they're not proactively stepping up, uh, sometimes they respond to pressure. And I'm thinking of your own tweet at GoDaddy, the domain registrar, 
which was hosting the neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, and they had been doing so for a while. But your tweet kind of put that on the map and let the public know. Yeah, I, that was that really caught me by surprise. That was an interesting week. I um, around I I think it was around nine o'clock. I sent the tweet because I saw the article saying horrible things about Heather Heyer, and I all I could think about is I don't want her mother to see this. This has got to get pulled down, and so I tweeted to GoDaddy and. It's just one of those things. It's the power of social media. 5,000 people within an hour retweeted it. And by 11 o'clock, they tweeted, we're, we're, we've given them 24-hour notice um, to take it down. And um, it's not that much fun being on my side because then, <laughs> then they doxed me. They were, I had death threats and all the rest, which I, I seem to have a lot of uh, in this position. But, um, you know, we kept up the activism. We went after that they went to Google and we did the same thing with Google and Google had them down. So to my knowledge, that website is is gone. And I think it's a fine line between wanting to give everybody a voice and some of the um, voices that we've given to hate and legitimized hate. And I think you've seen the shift as well with our college campuses where they were super eager to have these people come on campus and talk about like a Spencer or some of these debunked people like the guy who wrote the bell jar to have them come and talk about the plight of the white working man when really what they were talking about was racism <laughs> just call it what it is and now the colleges are saying you know it's fine to have different points but we don't want violence on our campus we don't want hatred on our campus i think it's a very fine line that our country is going down right now of of protecting our First Amendment, but also protecting people's safety. And that's the Daily Stormer. I mean, it, it was a hotbed for hate. And you, you want that stuff to not be so out there where it can, you know, be mainstreamed. And that was my concern, you know, that this stuff gets mainstreamed, that they start showing up on campuses. It's a lot different to go hear Jeb Bush speak than it is to hear Richard Spencer speak. I mean, I am all for, and I run a nonpartisan organization, so we, I'm just as familiar in my work for the new agenda with a Nikki Haley as I am with Democratic women as, in, in my role as the new agenda, because I know them all. I've been following Nikki Haley since 2008, and our job, you know, my job in the new agenda is to advocate to get more women in leadership, period. So we're nonpartisan. So I, I'm all about inclusiveness and finding common ground on, on issues we can agree on. But then you have this whole ugly side of America that Trump has legitimized and brought into the mainstream that should not be in the mainstream. So it, it, it's something that we're kind of going through right now as a country. How long do you plan to publish this weekly list? Until he's gone. Until he's gone. I mean, it's, um, it, it, believe me, not a pleasure. I haven't had a day off. It started or since it really got underway. Um, I, at this point, I'm spending 20 to 30 hours a week on it. And um, I, I just realized the significance of someone keeping track. And it's, I view it as my civic responsibility. And I, I know it's important. Um, and, and this fall, I, I also am aware that it's not in the prettiest of formats and easiest of formats to find. I'm working with a designer developer who does the New Agenda's website, and we're going to put together 
a beautiful website where you can find the list, but then you can also find the moveon.org videos. You can find the tool that allows you to sort them, you know, and all the associated resources like the articles that led me to, to put together the list. Um, those kind of things all in one place just to make life easier for everyone and, and to have it be more presentable. But, but yes, I, I realize the importance of this. I'm going to continue until he's gone. Just before we close, Amy, I want to come back to your tagline about remembering and juxtapose that against your list this week. In the opening summary, you write, week 41 is full of content about Trump-Russia and indications that the Mueller probe is closing in on Trump and his regime. And in the two weeks since Charlottesville, our country is consumed in flames of hate and Trump is fanning those flames. Also, you write, he continues his unimpeded march to authoritarian power, neutralizing the judicial branch with an unethical pardon and attacking members of his own party in an effort to silence them. You conclude that summary writing, so far the, the latter is largely working. And as this week comes to a close, remaining checks and balances to save our democracy are eroding, and Trump appears to feel fully in power. And I guess after reading that, I have to ask, are you hopeful that at this point, um, our active remembering can still help us get back to a new, or I should say, an old normal? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a naturally um, glass half-full person, which is, I guess, in part the only reason I'm able to cope with doing this week after week. So I believe in the end, something's going to catch up to him when people ask me what it is. I, I don't think I, I certainly don't know. I mean, there's so many balls in the air. I don't know which one is going to be the one that's going to bring him down. But I don't believe he'll make it through to 2020. Uh, that said, if he does, we're really in trouble because he'll never. And he, you know, just like you have a regime in power, he'll never leave if we get to 2020. So it is that dire. And I really keep telling people even if you haven't been involved yet, even if you haven't been engaged, now's the time. We all have to be engaged to fight. I mean, this is history. Nothing like this has ever happened, but we have to fight to take back our country. Amy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. We'll be sure to link to your list, which will no doubt be a part of the record when this very strange history is all written. Thanks again. Yes, thank you so much for having me. That does it for this episode of The Resistors. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much to Amy for joining us. You can find her weekly list on Medium and Twitter at Amy underscore Siskin. You can also listen to more episodes of The Resistors on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you know someone who should be a guest on a future episode, connect with us at theresistors.co.